Good morning, everyone. I, I, I got to tell you, it fills me with a, a certain sense of like pride and joy when the subwoofer knocks our props down. Just like rock on on that. I want to kick us off. I want to show you a quote today. That it's something that's really struck me. It's something that's resonated in my soul and in many ways has shaped even the way I do ministry. Here it is. The quote says, I like to think that teaching begins the discussion. I think that's the greatness of Jesus' teaching, is that it pushes us and it begins the discussion. We're still talking about Jesus' teachings. And so my goal is always to begin a discussion about whatever we're diving into. And so sometimes you might leave here thinking, but now I have way more questions than answers. Have you ever been there, just out of curiosity, to which I respond, yes. Because I'll tell you this, we don't have God all figured out, and we never will. And that isn't to say that there isn't things that we can't know about God. God is knowable. God reveals himself. But God is so infinite and vast, and his work in our lives in this world I find to be so complex and so multifaceted that if we think we ever have him figured out and can just bring our technical manual or mathematical formulas to him, we are fundamentally reducing him and selling him short. Questions are a good thing. Questions about your faith are a good thing. About God, they're a good thing. About what God is up to in this world. Even if when you come with them, they feel more like doubts, can I submit to you today that these are good things? Because what it says to me is that you're engaging that you're wrestling, that you're not dismissing things with easy answers so you don't have to deal with it anymore. God wants you to deal with him. God wants you to wrestle with him. I think of that famous story of God picking this, this man named Jacob, and they fight throughout the night. There's something intimate in wrestling with God. And the amazing thing about God is that it's something he puts his arms wide open on and invites us into. And my experience in church has been that there's often two kinds of people. One kind is the person who has burning questions. But because they're new or because they've been Christians for 40 years and, and think that perception says they should know better, are afraid to ask them. I don't need hands on this, but have you ever been there? You have those questions that you've wanted to ask, but you don't know who to ask, and even if you did, you're kind of embarrassed to ask them. You're afraid how you might be looked at. You're afraid how you might be judged. You're afraid how people might perceive. You're afraid what it might reveal in your own life that you might not want to give words to. I'm here to tell you today, God wants you to ask those questions. Then there's another group. It's the group that thinks they have it figured out. I've been reading the Bible for 30 years. I've been to Bible school even. I've been doing the Christian thing so long that you almost forget there were questions to begin with. You find yourself in a groove as though you have all the right answers. If you were given a test in a classroom, you would get like 98% of it. But the questions in your life have stopped. They stop going from what you put on paper as being the right answer to how it connects in your life. 
to how it interfaces with life in our world today, to how it matrixes against other belief systems that you may have been exposed to or come up against it. And I'm here to tell you today, if I'm speaking to you, learn what it means to start asking questions again, questions about God and life and spirituality and what he's up to in this world. Now, one more quote. This comes from our, our, our value statements at Fellowship of Faith, a desire to be real. We believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people. Not masked, not covered, not facade. Real people, which means joys, passions, and yes, sins and struggles. And so because of this, at FOF, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in open and honest ways. And we believe it's important as a community on this side of the deck and on that to be honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives, and sincere in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. And because of those two quotes that I've just shared with you, we do what we do here today. Today begins three weeks of something that isn't new to FOF, but something that I look forward to every year. Questions you never thought you could ask in church. Let me tell you how it works. In just a moment, I'm going to flash a phone number on the screen. And right now, I invite you to pull out one of these, or a tablet, or a laptop if you go that school, all right? To pull out one of these, to turn it on, today is the day that it is good to text in church. What we want you to do is this. Any question you have, nothing is off limits. Any question you have on God, Christianity, spirituality, life, the church, this church, shoot, even me, Tina, my wife, I'll tell you all about her, all right? Um, nothing is off limits here, guys. There is no such thing as a bad question. There is nothing too shallow or deep, nothing too mainline or heretical. Whatever questions you might have, text them in anonymously. I'm going to get them on an iPad right here, and what I am going to do is the very best that I can of trying to answer or, or, or at least speak into those questions right here on the spot. So for the next 20, 25 minutes or so, that's what we're going to do together. Text your questions in to this number. To this number, 815-314-0363. That's 815-314-0-F-O-F. All right? Text your questions in starting now. I will get through as many as I possibly can in the time that we have allotted. And my hope is let's see what God does through this process here today. How he draws us deeper into his heart, his will, and his plan for us, for you, as a church together. Cool? All right, while you're texting, um, a couple people emailed me this week who positioned themselves as texting illiterate, okay? And they, they said, can we shoot you a couple of emails? So as you're texting in, I'm going to start with these just to prime the pump as we get going here today. Here's one. One great catechism of faith is that the chief purpose of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Certainly the Apostle Paul was outstanding in glorifying God through his ministry of evangelism and, and church building to the Gentiles and often suffering physical harm as a result. 
but could you please amplify for me the evidence that Paul enjoyed God during his earthly life? Fantastic question. And let me answer it in two ways. One, as good as the Westminster Confession is, I'm not sure Paul would have answered the chief purpose of man in that same way. Ask Paul what the purpose of life is, and I think he would have said something more like this. To love and obey God at all costs, no matter what. That's expressed through loving others as yourself. Now that being said, Paul certainly enjoyed his relationship with God. And you can go all through th- all 13 of his letters, or at least most of them, and you're going to see that all of his letters open with a certain sense of gush, a certain sense of, man, I am just so delighted in my heart. I am so thankful. I am so overjoyed. Philippians, interestingly enough, written from a time of persecution and suffering, is nothing but a letter of pure joy coming out of Paul's heart from beginning to end. See, for Paul, enjoying God was not something that was bifurcated from suffering, conflict, and challenge, but something that he could find in the midst of it and even find it better in those places. Great question. Here's another one. I seem to find that much of the Bible and Christian teachings can be spun with so many confusing interpretations. Yeah? This obviously is done by humans for human purposes, both good and bad. Why doesn't God simply intervene sooner to help believers with more tangible support? Do you ever wish God would come down and just figure it out? Just just solve it and tell us what to do, right? I have a suspicion that God would say, I did. And this is what the ministry of Jesus in the Bible is all about. And I'm not insensitive to your question here. I understand what you're asking. But I think it reveals something that lies deep in the heart of many of us. We want a relationship with God where he does everything and we sit back in comfort letting him solve the hard and difficult things of our life and we just go along for the joy ride in the process. Guys, that was never God's plan even before creation. He selects Adam and Eve, and he puts it in their hands. He selects Adam and Eve before this thing called sin, and he goes, figure it out. Be my presence. Do the work of creating and developing and building and solving and discovering. I put it in your hands. Because God does not want to treat us like five-year-old girls. He wants to treat us like men. And that includes you women here, too. He wants to treat us as people who are growing and maturing That's the kind of God he is. A God that says, get to work. Is there a time to enjoy? You better believe it. One day a week, it's called the Sabbath. But the other six, get in the game. Because in the struggle and in the work and in the development, you're going to find me there. And it's going to be amazing. And let's see what gets discovered together in the process. So view those things as maybe a good thing that challenges you to get into the game in a serious way. All right, here's one. I do accept that the Bible is the word of God, or at least the inspired word of God. I would also expect God to continue to communicate with his creation in our current day and age. With the risk of some or many being false prophets, 
Why can't we see modern-day prophets or disciples that we can clearly know and trust? Off the bat, I wanted to answer this. You can. The entire idea behind the preaching and evangelistic ministry that Jesus put in the hands of his disciples and that the church has been doing for 2,000 years has been simply the idea of prophecy. Prophecy is not future-telling. It's speaking a word of God into a current situation. Do prophets need to be tested? You better believe it. Do prophets need to be compared against God's prevailing word? You better believe it. But none of that should be construed to think that prophecy has ceased to exist. Otherwise, what are we doing on Sunday mornings around the globe? Now, to the word clearly. Why can't we see that we, them in such a way that we can clearly know and trust? You know, I want to encourage you not to confuse the word clearly with the word certainty. Most of us hunger for absolute certainty in our life. I'm going to tell you, this side of eternity, you're just not going to get it in anything. In everything, there is always the capacity for doubt. This is why so much of the scriptures is Christ or God inviting us to trust him, precisely because there is uncertainty, precisely because doubt can creep in. And it's not to trust blindly, to test. So my encouragement to you is if you're wrestling with this, listen intently. Test the prophecies that you're hearing. Dig in. Dig in and do the hard work. All right, how about this one? There's a lot of, by the way, um, textually challenged people at 9 a.m. What does the LCMS really do for FOF? And conversely, what does FOF really do for the LCMS? Now, Fellowship of Faith, or FOF, belongs to a a, a fellowship of believers called the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, or unfortunately too often the Lutheran Church Misery Synod, that is, is a fellowship of believers that are trying to walk together. Now, it's a confederation, because this is different in various denominations. It's a confederation, which means this. FOF is ultimately autonomous. We own our own property. We hire our own staff. We control our own assets. We make our own decisions internally about doctrine and practice and things like this. The LCMS is not a controlling or centralized body that has really any control over the local congregation. It's something that we do willingly. And what do they do for us? Well, here's the kind of things that they do. Church workers can share things like insurance plans and retirement plans, and they figure it out and we're able to step in without a lot of the legwork. If there's ever conflicts or issues that are happening in the church, they have teams of people that will step in to help churches work through those times, or vacancies, helping them take next steps into what it's supposed to be. There's legal protection. In a day and age where it's becoming more and more unpopular, shall we say, to be an institutional Christian um, operation, There are certain things that they figured out and put into place that they offer to us and that we can share from us and things like that. But really, the better question, and I'm so glad you asked it, what does FOF really do for the LCMS? Well, you know, at one level, we help financially support them. And let's not underestimate that. But, you know, I'll tell you, I think the entire way that churches are fellowshipping today has kind of missed the point. 
because it's not about having your church's name on a certain role or roster. It's about looking at the other churches going, you're my brother. How can I help you in your time of need? I'm your sister. How can you help us in our time of need? What would it mean if if Lutheran churches, instead of duplicating themselves on every block and corner, completely separately from each other, would take an attitude? Let me give you this. We get calls all the time here at Fellowship of Faith. We heard what you're about. We like what you're doing. Can you show us? What would it look like for a church like this to look at churches in a time of need or asking those questions? To invest in them. To walk alongside of them. To welcome them in, but also pour ourselves into them. And in places where we are still searching and discovering, to have churches breathe into us in the same way, isn't that what it's supposed to be in community? The LCMS is like a lot of things. It's what you make of it. And a question like that kind of reveals to me, are we doing the right thing of what it should be about? Great question. Love it. Love it. All right. I will get to that. I'm almost there. I was raised Missouri Synod and taught that you are baptized as a child. My children were baptized as children, and that confirmation is when you confirm that faith. My daughter, however, has married someone who was raised Baptist. As an adult, she has become stronger in her faith and now feels she wants to be baptized again, confirming that she has accepted her faith. Is this okay to get baptized two times? To answer your question very literally and specifically, yes. Is it okay? I mean, yes, it's not poison. It's, it's, it's not like when you come to the baptismal water, it's like ODing on your meds or something if you do it more than once. It's not going to make your hair fall out. It's not going to ruin your... F- yes, it's okay. But I would also say this. It's unnecessary. It's like getting vaccinated twice. I mean, if that does it for you and you like shots, go for it. I mean, rock on. But it's unnecessary. Because when you're baptized, you're not baptized into a denomination. You're not baptized into a local church. You're baptized into Christ. And it is as much, if not more, about what God is doing for you in that moment than what you're professing. You should be professing your faith every single day. Water or not. You don't need to get baptized again to say, I'm a believer, I repent, I'm coming back, I'm back in this. But do you have doubt in your life? Is there some compelling reason? Is it okay? Yeah. Also, she has not had her children baptized. They can choose to do this when they can accept their faith. She is raising them Christian. They attend Sunday school every week. I was taught that you must be baptized to go to heaven. Is this true? And what is something happens to them before they confirm their faith with uh, baptism. Um, Let me cut to the chase right now. You do not have to be baptized to go to heaven. You do not go to heaven because you are baptized. You go to heaven because Jesus Christ died for your sins. Now, baptism is a powerful way that the Holy Spirit will come into your life and take a hold of you, which is why I encourage parents, don't wait. Baptize your kids. Bring them to the water and open that door of what God wants to do in their life. But does it hinge on that and that alone? No, I don't think so. God is a powerful God 
that works in all kinds of powerful and mysterious ways. But I likewise encourage you, don't leave this one to the wayside. All right. Good pump priming here today. Let's jump in. Come on, baby. What does the Bible say about women leaders in the church and in the country? Lots of good things. Good question. Does everyone have their own guardian angel? If so, since they aren't perfect as far as I know, is it possible for them to slip up and we get hurt? So in other words, like your guardian angel will be like sleeping on the clock or something like that. Is that what you're asking? You know, the Bible isn't clear. Um, it, it never says anywhere explicitly that, that, that we all have our own personal like secret service from heaven. Um, but it does talk powerfully about the angelic force, about God's hosts and messengers who oftentimes are in roles to fight and protect and they are not, from the Bible's perspective, omnipotent, all-powerful. That is God and God alone. And I tell you, it leaves a lot of those questions unanswered. But here's what I see the Bible saying more. Don't put your hope in angels. Put your hope in me. Because God says, I am omnipotent. And you don't need angels watching your back. I might use them on your behalf, but what you really need is me. Put your focus and your trust there. What is your most embarrassing moment as pastor of FOF? There's a lot. I remember one time, and it was early on in my ministry. Those of you who come here, you know, I don't like to use notes or read a script. I like to try to speak to you and ingest what I'm going to say personally before I speak. And I remember, I was like walking around like right here, and I just blanked. And sometimes you can blank and fake it. But have you ever had those moments when you blank, and it's like, I've got nothing. And you're kind of doing the, ah. And I remember having to sit here going, as a preacher, can I just encourage you guys on this? Never back yourself in the corner and telling someone you've got three points or four that you want to share. You know why? Because you might forget point three and point four before you ever get there. And that's what happened. It was like, I got four things I want to share with you guys, and I got through one, and I spaced. And it, it was gone. And I literally just had to say, guys, you know, um, it's gone. <laughs> and I'm sure it was really good. And I'll have to share it with you someday. Would the band come forward, please? That's just one that comes to mind off the bat. All right, how about this? <laughs> My six-year-old wants to know, how does Pastor Dave know everything? All right? Some of us just have crosses to bear. It, <laughs> sweetie, whoever you are that's out there, I do not know everything. And anyone who says that, you can know for sure that they don't know everything. That was you. Emily, I don't know everything. Your dad worked with me. Just ask him sometime, all right? <laughs> Only God knows everything. So read your Bible and see what he has to say, okay? Good question, honey. All right. Jesus came at the fullness of time. What made it full then and not now? I don't know. Emily. I don't know. <laughs> You know, people have studied this and talked about the perfect storm of the world at that day and age, how things historically had converged with, with a Roman empire and a Roman road system and, a, and an international language and, and, and the swelling of things. And Okay, great, but couldn't that have been at other times in history as well? I don't know, but what I do know about God is this. 
He's over-anxious. He promises a day that's going to come. But God does not like to wait. And so what you see with Jesus is almost him coming too soon or ahead of time. We're still waiting for that day. The true fullness of time, the coming of Jesus is breaking in like coming attractions, previews, getting eager and giddy, going, i got to give him some now, right? Think of him as a God that way. A God who's eager to explode something in your life in the here and now as well. See what he might be up to. God answers all my prayers. Forgive me. God answers all prayers. I pray for the eternal salvation of my family. How do I know he answered me? Will I ever know in my life? How do you know that he answered you? He invites you to trust him. You might never get a sign. You might never get an internal sense of certainty. He reaches out his hand and he says, trust that I am faithful. We've just spent 40 weeks on Paul and this is the central message of him. God is faithful. Trust that I'm faithful, he says, when you pray about anything. But know that that a prayer might be answered in a number of ways. Yes, no, or later. Now I know this. God wants your family to be saved. He desires it more than you. Can you believe that? And he is going to do everything in his power to bombard those people. He's unscrupulous. God fights dirty. He, He just does. Don't get in the ring with him. He fights dirty. And he will stop at nothing to reach out to you, to grab you, to convict you, to coax you. But what I've learned with God is that he often doesn't force people, certainly not in this equation. You may never know in your life the fruit of what you pray for, but God does. And God says that prayers are powerful and effective, so don't give up. Does the Lutheran church believe that the communion elements become Christ's actual body and blood? Yes, yes they do, but they simultaneously believe that they still remain bread and wine. What, are the exa- what exactly are the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism? Protestantism begins with a P. Catholicism begins with a C. Did Jesus know he was divine? <laughs> Did Jesus know he was divine when he was a kid. You know, can I put it this way? I think so. I would, I would certainly put the money in Vegas down on that, that side of things. And, you know, and here's where I'm coming with it. Jesus is fully divine and fully human, which means as God, he knows everything and is human, he had to grow and learn. And you see the scriptures pursue both lines. I love that line at the end of Luke chapter 2, where it talks about Jesus as a boy growing in grace and wisdom and stature. How do you grow in wisdom if you're God? He's human. So I will tell you this. He certainly knew he was God's son. And I don't mean in the way that we talk about it, like we're all God's children, kumbaya. No, he knew there was something special. I am God's son. You see him debating with the rabbis in the temple as a 12-year-old, saying, I need to be in my father's house. We get so used to talking that way. Do you know how heretical, out of the box it was to speak that way in Jesus' day? So he knew there was something there, but to what degree? To what ability? It's a mystery. And we can't ever water down either side of who Jesus is. All that he is in his divinity, all that he is in his humanity, 
So how's that for a good runaround answer for something at a very base level I can't answer with more exactitude? All right. Do you want to know the Protestant Catholicism thing? Um, there's a lot of differences. So let me start by saying this. The differences, in my opinion, are more secondary than most people give credence to. At the end of the day, Catholics and Protestants are brothers and sisters in Christ, baptized together into one true faith, confessing one God the Father Almighty who's creator of heaven and earth, confessing one Lord Jesus Christ who's the only Son of God, who's begotten uh, before all worlds, who came to this earth born of a virgin, born for our salvation, was crucified, died, and was buried, who rose from the dead three days later and will come again in glory. We both confess the same things, that there's this Holy Spirit who's active and on the prowl, that there's one universal church, whatever labels we give to our local congregations. There's a community of saints that exists, a forgiveness of sins that's presence, a life everlasting, a resurrection from the dead. At some level, we are so blood brothers, it's unbelievable. The differences are secondary. But secondary things are important. And I don't mean to minimize this. The key difference that led to the split between Catholicism and Protestantism, as it's called today, comes down to this. How do you get right with God? God is our judge, we all agree. How do you get right with him? The Catholic response historically was this. Jesus died for your sins, you are saved by grace. But that grace is, is, is accessed, brought into you, come to life through these things that we call the sacraments, conveyed by a priest, be it baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession and, and, and absolution, penance, things like this. And these become almost God's lines of support to bring that grace into your life. And to take hold of that is a combination of things. Responding in faith and rubbing up alongside of it is called love, which sounds amazing, doesn't it? But here's the problem. How much love? Does love have to be there first? Because it's just another way of saying what I contribute to the equation, what I do. Are you with me? The Protestant reaction was this. There's nothing you can do to get right with God. Nothing. God wants you to become a person who's, who's marked and filled by love, but this comes after the fact. You're saved because of grace, because Jesus died for you. And he counts you right in God's eyes simply if you throw yourself into that, throw yourself on his mercy. Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Have mercy. Forgive me for the sake of your son and that alone. Now, there's other things I could discuss, but it's at that juncture where Protestantism and Catholicism diverged in the woods. There's far more, but hopefully that at least hits some of the major things. Okay. Do you think Donald Trump might be the Antichrist? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe you are, too. <laughs> and here's why I answer it this way. I would say the same thing about President Obama, about Hillary Clinton. Too much head nodding, all right? I would say the same thing about Ronald Reagan or Mikhail Gorbachev. I would say the same thing about everyone because everyone gets fixated on one central figure being the 
Antichrist. Do you realize that when John talks about the Antichrist, that's not the way he talks about it? He talks about the possibility of all of us being Antichrist. Have you ever been Antichrist? You might profess Christ as your Savior and Lord, but has your life, your words, and your actions ever done things anti-him? Guess what that makes you, right? We are all far more more culpable of being anti-Christ than I think we like to admit. And my encouragement is rather than looking for one figure to pin it on, look inside and go, Lord, how am I for or anti-Christ today? Can anyone receive communion at FOF? To answer the question literally, can? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, fight your way up, throw some elbows, and, you know, I don't think we'll take you. Um, I, I, I really think you can take some of our communion assistance and, and force your way to the table. But should anyone receive communion? No. No. This is something powerful. There is something that happens here that has a quotient to it that will affect you. And the scriptures themselves are clear. Do it the wrong way, and you're not receiving grace, you're receiving judgment on yourself. Paul goes so far as to say, the reason some of you are sick and dying is because you're doing this table thing the wrong way. This is how I see the scriptures inviting people to communion. Myself and each of you included. Four questions I want to give you. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you really actually believe it? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sins? Are you really throwing yourself on his mercy and seeking him for your forgiveness and way to get right on God? Or are you still trying to do it on your own? Do you believe that God is alive and powerful and on the prowl and coming to you and revealing himself and wanting to, 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 to come into you through this meal, but not just through the magic wafer, but through this body gathering in his name? And number four, for those of you who have been playing the Christian game for a long time, when you come, do you actually repent? Are you actually bringing your sins to God and saying, I'm not just sorry for them. I'm turning from them. I'm turning to your way. If you can answer yes to all four of those, then what I see the scriptures saying, welcome to the table of the Lord. But if you can't answer yes to all four of those, what would be far better and more spiritually helpful is deep repentance and soul searching here today. And with that, we are at 9.50, 30 minutes like that. There are so many more texts that I have not gotten to. Rock on, 9 o'clock, all right? I got good news for you. We get next Sunday. And I'm not leaving these in the breeze. Bring your phones back next Sunday. We're going to keep opening live texting for more and more. But I'm going to dig in more at 1030 today with a fresh batch of questions. And what I haven't gotten to today, we're going to pick up with next Sunday. So I encourage you to come out for that if we didn't get to yours. It's not because I'm ignoring it. All right? Guys, our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. And it's given for you. After supper, he took a cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. 
we get the chance to come together today to share in Jesus as he works through us together. As our band starts to lead us through a time of worship and prayer, ask yourself those four questions today. Prepare your heart. Do the tilling inside. And whatever your background, if you can answer yes to those four, we invite you to come and partake of this with us. And if you can't answer yes to all four, encourage you not to. And no one will look at you with weird eyes or with shame. In fact, the respect level goes through the roof. There's a person that takes it seriously. I don't know where you're at today, but I encourage you to come to God in that place. And uh, maybe we should just do that right now for like a minute or so. Would you rise with me? Take a moment and let's pray personally, internally, individually to God. Review those four questions with him and open the conversation and let it go as God wants to, to drive it in these next few moments. God, hear the prayers of your people for all of us wrestling with our sin, God. Convict us if we have taken it too lightly. Shower us in your mercy and grace and forgiveness when we find ourselves broken. May our faith, Lord Jesus Christ, be rooted in you and you alone, your death and your resurrection, the forgiveness that you bring and the transformation that comes. May we reach out to you in faith, trusting that you work through ordinary people like us and ordinary meals like this. May we have a passion to seek your will and your way, turning from our corruption, our rebellion, and our disobedience. Hear our prayer today.